from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. When I met Darren Walker just a few months ago, a friend took me across a crowded room with the words, Talk to this man about food, Ruthie. He is passionate. So I did as told and put away all my questions about the dynamic, social, radical, philanthropic work he does. President of the Ford Foundation, a member on the Council of Foreign Relations, a fellow of the Institute for Urban Design, vice chairman at the New York City Ballet, and more. So here we are, ready to carry on our conversation about food, memories, and his extraordinary work. You've chosen a recipe. Would you like to read it? I'd be delighted. Thank you. Prosciutto and fig. Serves six. Ideally use purple basil and ripe black figs, or green basil and ripe green figs. Twelve slices prosciutto, San Daniel, nine ripe black or green figs, one bunch fresh mint, one bunch fresh purple or green basil, one bunch rocket, juice of one lemon, four to six tablespoons extra virgin olive oil. Cut the figs in half. Pick the young tender leaves from the mint and select the smaller basil leaves. Pick over the rocket leaves, removing the larger stems. Then wash and dry. Mix the lemon juice with the olive oil. Season generously. Toss the figs with the herb and rocket leaves and the dressing. Place on individual plates, combining the prosciutto slices into the salad as you do so. It sounds divine. Beautifully read. Thank you. Why um, did you choose this recipe? I chose this recipe because I love figs. I'm from the American South, and in Louisiana and Texas, figs are plentiful. And so I had them in just about everything. And they were both sweet and tasty and healthy. Mm. So I loved them as a child. So would it be sweet as in a tart or in a jam? Or Well, we in the South didn't have things like tarts. Mm. We had pies. Pies. Which, Excuse me. And cobblers. Mm-hmm. So I remember my grandmother making cobblers. She made fig cobblers, peach cobblers, strawberry cobblers, but my favorite were the figs. Mm. And would you pick them from the trees or would she go to a shop to buy them? Did you have oh, always, fig trees growing? Always in, in the, the always in the yard. Always, always in the yard. Um, in the south, uh, people have in their backyards before yeah. organic uh, farming became chic. Yeah. Uh, regular old uh, working class Southerners would have figs in their backyard, fig wow. trees, pecan trees, yeah. all sorts of trees. I remember picking things from mulberries, 
it was a magical place yeah. in spite of the fact that we were poor. Mm. Because there were certain occasions when there were foods mm. that absolutely repulsed me that my family, especially my elders, ate. So I think it's interesting to talk about regional food in the United States because if I, if, if I were to talk about Italy right now, I would say that the food of Italy isn't even region to region. It's town to town, city yes. to city, sometimes home to home, sister to brother. And when I think about food in the United States, the regional food that we talk mostly about, I think, is Southern food. And then if you divided Southern food into Southern food of African Americans and the history of that food, whether a lot of that food came from Africa, whether I was reading that apparently some owners of plantations would send for food for, from Africa, some seeds uh, that people are doing really interesting research about how African Americans really contribute to the food of the United States. Do you agree? There would be no great American food without the food of African Americans. Both the foods that we brought with us on the passage to America, the rice that is Mm -hmm. a part of our tradition that is now so deeply embedded in American food, especially Mm -hmm. Southern food. And when I think about the South and Mm -hmm. regional cuisine, it's important to understand the role of class and race and the status of Mm African-Americans. For example, I detest what I call slave food. What is that? Slave food uh, are the remnants Mm -hmm. of the cow, Mm -hmm. for example, that the uh, owners discarded. For example, this would include the intestines, Is that which chitlins? are called chitlins. Chitlins, yeah. Uh, 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 pig's feet, mm. uh, chicken neck, the things that the enslaved people uh, really had to eat because they were not allowed to experience the bounty of the very produce uh, and poultry mm. and meats that they cultivated Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I have a really hard time, and I think it's a psychological issue of of the complexity of being black in America. Mm -hmm. The contradictions of our Mm -hmm. culture Mm -hmm. uh, plays out in food. Mm -hmm. And and for me, part of it, I think, is just my own, uh, the the psychology, uh, Mm -hmm. the trauma of being poor in America and saying, whatever is associated with that, I'll reject it. And I'm not sure it's really fair because there are lots of people who love chitlins and Mm. pig's feet. I mean, my Mm. French friends love Andriette. Oh, Andriette is the sausage of the intestines. Exactly. What we call in... Uh, rural Louisiana, boudin. Uh, boudin, it's, yeah, it's the blood amazing. sausage. The yeah. blood sausage, it's mm. all amazing. Mm. And when you mm. and when you toast it and uh, put uh, uh, hot sauce mm. and all those kinds of spices on it. Mm. And then we talk about the food of uh, the Creole community. Mm. So this is the complexity of the American mm. South. It's, it's very much yes. region by region because where I'm from, in Louisiana, the food uh, is very much a function of seafood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
gumbos, etouffees. Uh, these are the sorts of things that uh, I grew up on. My mother, who is Creole, uh, is a master chef when it comes to good, old-fashioned Creole foods. Mm. So we just go back one minute because you, in one hand, said that enslaved people were forced to eat the remnants in, in the most appalling way of the owners. But you also said that they brought food with them from Africa. Were they allowed to eat the food that they brought with them, or were they totally only allowed to eat the food that was chosen for them by the owners? Well, actually, what happened was that they were able to uh, bring uh, seeds and certain kinds of foods that ultimately became appropriated by mm. the owners. Um, and it's why uh, rice is so plentiful in Creole foods, um, in a lot of Southern dishes, because that was a clear and important staple food. Um, but for the most part, the things that uh, the enslaved people brought with them they were not allowed. They were not, yeah. And can you just define what Creole food is there? So you Creole people are the people of Louisiana, the southern part of Louisiana, and Creole is a result of the mix of African enslaved uh, women primarily right. um, who were impregnated by their owners. Right. And in places like... Um, uh, Martinique, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Haiti, mm -hmm. uh, countries like this mm -hmm. uh, were in some ways the origins of Creole culture. But New Orleans became the center of the Creole world. Mm -hmm. And it was um, this amalgamation of French. That's what uh, I was going to say. It's absolutely. French because Creole sounds... So French. Absolutely and I French. just trying to and, figure and, out where the and, French came from. Well, and it's important to understand that uh, the Louisiana Purchase, yes. which was owned by France, yeah. and of course uh, Jefferson facilitated mm. the purchase of that massive part of America that mm. France owned, where French culture was already established. Mm. French foods were established. But the arrivals of large numbers of enslaved people mm. really changed uh, mm -hmm. the texture of the food. It became more spicy, mm -hmm. richer than other parts of the United States where the spices mm -hmm. were, were, were really not a part of the food tradition. So it's both a part of the racial history is, of, yeah. of the country, Just, the American South. My mm -hmm. mother uh, herself, a very light-skinned black woman with long hair like yours mm. um, is, is a result of yeah. the kinds of um, mixing, mixing, if you will. And when you visit a city like New Orleans, you see uh, many, many people uh, mm. with, uh, who are black mm -hmm. with uh, light skin, straight hair, mm. um, who also call themselves Creole. Creole. And so going back, back, tell me, about the family you were born into? Well, I was born um, in a small town in Louisiana, August 28, 1959, oh. place of birth, Charity Hospital, Lafayette, Do you think it was Louisiana. a proper charity? I mean, did people contribute it to it? Or it was a state-run hospital. It was um, a really challenging place. Mm. Um, I was born to a single mother. I never knew my father. Mm -hmm. 
but in many ways, it made me resilient. Mm-hmm. I remember one person saying to my mother, what ails your yeah. boy? Mm-hmm. Something ails your boy. Yeah. And of course, what ailed me was that I was a little queer boy. Mm-hmm. And that was, for some just an anathema, Mm -hmm. and that my mother seemed to be so comfortable and supportive of me uh, Mm -hmm. was also an oddity. My mother worked a lot, Mm -hmm. and she always did her very best Mm -hmm. to cook. And and when she wanted to really treat us, she cooked my favorite jambalaya, shrimp, andouille sausage, chicken, and a real deep black roux that's made in an old skillet Mm. um, and with bell peppers and Mm. onions. It was just divine. Where would she buy the ingredients? Would you find shrimp and fish markets? Absolutely. In every town. In every town. There is um, plentiful along the Gulf Coast, and we weren't far uh, from the Gulf Coast. Uh, You could find shrimp and crawfish and catfish, all the things that I used to love. And then you just, as I said, put McElhaney hot sauce Mm. on it Mm. on everything, Mm. and it was beyond delicious. This was all in her head. My mother to this day intuitively knows how to make a great gumbo, a great cornbread stuffing for uh, Mm. the turkey at Thanksgiving, Mm. just intuitively. And did she teach you? Well, Ruthie, I live the the New Yorker life that I always wanted to live, which mean which means I eat out every yeah. night. Yeah, um, I get it. I when you live in New York City, the combination of dinner parties, galas, and great restaurants yeah. means that you can choose to simply not cook. Yeah. I have. I think there are apartments without kitchens now. Oh, well, there are apartments. Uh, I lived in a lovely apartment with uh, a tin burner wolf range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mother came to visit. She said, son, I think something's wrong with your stove. And I said, oh, my gosh, really? So I called down to the porter, and he comes to the apartment, and he goes into the kitchen, and I'm standing there with him and my mother, and he says, you never turned the pilot light on when you moved in. Oh. You, how said, long had you been living there? Well, it was August because my mother was in town for my oh. birthday. We moved in January. Oh. <laughs> and, of course, I said, what's a pilot light? I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We've talked about the cooking of your mother, family at home. What was your first restaurant experience? Well, my first restaurant experience was at the age of 13 when I worked as a busboy. 13? Indeed. Wow, very young. I worked uh, at a busboy at a place that was a, 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 a very nice seafood restaurant. And when you're a busboy, you sit at the bottom of the organization mm-hmm. along with the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And you, your job is to be as discreet and invisible as you can as you proceed around the room taking away the things that people no longer want. Mm -hmm. And that experience was profound because it was the first time that I truly understood what it felt like to be invisible Mm -hmm. because people simply did not acknowledge my very existence. What was the restaurant like? Was it a fancy restaurant? Well, or? I mean, for for you know Baytown, Texas, yeah. in uh, 1972, mm. it was it was a mm. it was a nice middle class restaurant that took credit cards, and mm-hmm. the professionals who worked mm. in the oil uh, refineries and those sorts mm. of places dined there all-white uh, clientele, and um, primarily back uh, of the house were black and, and Latinos working. Was it legal to employ a 13-year-old? Oh, of course it wasn't legal. It wasn't? No. no. <laughs> Silly so me. Just say, Silly me. I broke the law yeah. at age 13. Well, no, you didn't. But the it, but it the employer broke the law. What it, what it did for me was instantiate a sense of what it feels like to be marginalized. And I think about that today. Mm. How many people feel invisible? Mm -hmm. I went to college and... Where did you go? I went to the University of Texas in Austin, Texas, which for me, coming from my background and community, was like Mm. going to Paris. And there I was introduced to... An entirely new world of, of food. Of yes, food, but the reality of race and class mm-hmm. uh, really plays out in, in college. At least for me, it did. Mm-hmm. I lived in a dorm with people from all over Texas, mm-hmm. uh, white almost exclusively because the University of Mm. Texas at that time had over 40,000 students, less than 1,000 were African-Americans, and half of them were athletes. So it was, 
from that perspective, a a very uh, lonely place. Mm. But I'm an extrovert Mm. by nature, uh, and I found my way. Uh, I was very engaged. I was the leader of the student union. I was very much uh, engaged in, 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 in campus life. But in the process, I made friends with some interesting people. Mm-hmm. And I recall a debutante party where Frank Sinatra was the talent. Another where uh, the temptations and earth, wind, and fire. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing like Texas debutantes. They give Lovely. the best parties. Yeah. Their parents spend extravagantly. Mm-hmm. And... Caviar, I was introduced to at one of these uh, parties. In retrospect, it was good caviar. It wasn't great caviar, mm-hmm. but I knew that yeah. I was Hooked. tasting something that was really <laughs> good yeah. because it was with champagne. Yeah. And to me, there is literally nothing better. So you were in university, and then you went to New York? I came to New York. New York. I came to New York because I was enamored of the idea of New York. Like so many Mm. people who feel alien in their own community. So I went to New York. I went to New York because also I wanted to make money. Mm -hmm. And I'm unapologetic Mm -hmm. about that. Because when you grow up poor Mm -hmm. in America, black in America... Mm -hmm. The thing you don't want to ever be again is poor in America. And so I was lucky. I went to uh, first a a big law firm and then uh, to uh, a large bank and um, had a great run on Wall Mm -hmm. Street. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it, but it provided me with some level of financial security um, that was necessary. When you go to a restaurant... What do you look for? Do you look for the food, the atmosphere, the people, the energy? I look for the vibe. The vibe. And the vibe to me <laughs> includes what does it smell like? Mm-hmm. What does the menu look like? What does the design of the menu look like? What is the decor? Uh, is it consistent with the vibe? Or is there discontinuity of some mm-hmm. sort? I mean, for me, I really like energy. Mm-hmm. Some people, for example, say, oh, this restaurant's too loud. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like a loud restaurant. Yeah. If I want an intimate dinner, yeah. yes, I'll choose something that is quiet with very little background noise. But if I want to have a great evening I'll book a table at Balthazar, Mm -hmm. or it's loud, Mm -hmm. it's boisterous, it feels like New York on steroids. That's why I live in New York, to drink New York from the fire hose. And when you walk into a restaurant, you understand the vibe, Mm -hmm. you understand the menu, you Mm -hmm. understand the people by just looking around and taking it all in. Yeah. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You went to Harlem. It's hard to imagine now Mm -hmm. that there was a time when Harlem wasn't a desirable neighborhood. Oh, I remember. When I moved to to New York in the mid-1980s, no one really wanted to live in Harlem. Were there clubs? So there were great singing. By that time, the clubs were all gone. The Apollo was the only Mm. thing left. The Renaissance Ballroom, Small's Paradise, all of those great places. The Cotton Club. Yeah, the Cotton Club. They were all gone. And what had replaced them was massive disinvestment. Mm -hmm. I met the most brilliant man called... Reverend Calvin Butts, Mm -hmm. who is the pastor of the historic Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And he and another member of the church, Karen Phillips, had a dream, a vision to redevelop Harlem, Mm -hmm. to create an NGO, a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. that would take many of the literally thousands of vacant properties in Harlem and redevelop them. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. I For mm-hmm. eight years, I worked for him, developing over a thousand units of affordable mm-hmm. housing. We helped develop the main commercial street in Harlem, 125th Street. I know that in areas of poverty, the access to fresh food is actually very, very limited. I know there's been a strong movement to try and get food that isn't packaged, that isn't fast food, that isn't bad for your health, into areas of poverty. When I moved to Harlem in 1995, it was a food desert. Mm. There was no supermarket. There were no fresh foods to be found other than at the local bodegas, Mm -hmm. which were stocked primarily with brown things, brown lettuce, brown vegetables, Mm -hmm. and things close to their expiration date, whether it be dairy or other products. Um, And so this is why we fought so hard for a supermarket Mm -hmm. um, that would bring fresh produce. Um, And so that supermarket came Mm 
Mm-hmm. But along with it came higher income people. Mm-hmm. And the risk is always that gentrification means that the winners yeah. are the new residents and the losers are the people who yeah. have been there. Yeah, pushed out. And pushed out. Um, today, when I visit Harlem and you you come on the subway, come off the subway on 125th Street and you come up and you see on the one side you see Whole Foods, uh, Starbucks, uh, H&M. Uh, I mean, it is, I mean, there used to be nothing there but literally abandoned buildings. Yeah. Um, it's been transformed. And, Ruthie, there's both good and bad associated with that transformation. And what we at the Ford Foundation have worked on over many years is helping to address the issue of food deserts, Mm -hmm. to finance uh, supermarkets, uh, food uh, shops, um, other forms of cooperatives that bring fresh food from farms and other places. It is incredible work that you're doing at the Ford Foundation with your experience, having lived in poverty. Were you hungry as a child, or were you just limited in, the, in your choices? I was never hungry as mm-hmm. a child, but I was limited. And as I look back and reflect on some of the things we ate It's not a surprise to remember the levels of diabetes, for example. I recall visiting my family back in Rain, Louisiana. After we moved to Texas, we'd spend weeks in the summer there. And I recall walking on this dirt road past various little shotgun shacks where people lived, and seeing people without their limbs sitting on the porches, especially uh, large, uh, often overweight men and women without a leg Mm. or or with their leg uh, missing from the knee. And someone would whisper, oh, that's diabetes. Mm. And then I think about what we would have for lunch sometimes. We'd have a a slice of bread, uh, a slice of bologna, and what my great aunt would call sweetened water. What was that? Just water and sugar. And she'd take an old mason jar and just put water in from the faucet and then just pour Mm. sugar, saturated with sugar, Shake it and then pour it into our little plastic cups that Mm -hmm. we'd have. I think that we look at food, as you've just described it, as unequal, you know, insecure. We look at it as unfair, but we also look at it as great pleasure. We look at it as deliciousness. And we should celebrate it, right? Celebrating the the joy of of food. It's no matter where we are. Food is joy, and the way in which it signifies culture, Mm. generosity, a sense of grace, and an extension of human dignity to another, only food can do that. It conveys, doesn't it? Food conveys, as you say, love. It conveys um, generosity. It also conveys 
comfort. And so I was wondering, what would be your comfort food? My comfort meal. Okay, a meal. Fried chicken. Mm -hmm. Old-fashioned potato salad. Mm -hmm. Collard greens cooked in ham hock. And my mother's cornbread. Delicious, comforting, full of memories and love. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Well, let's go have lunch. I Shall love I? the idea let's of go lunch, have with lunch with Ruthie at the River Cafe. <laughs> lunch with Darren I'm at the River Cafe. I'm starving. Let's go have lunch. Thank you. To visit the online shop of the River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.